Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, January 23rd. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. On today's show, Indigenous people have been overrepresented in our prison system for quite some time, and a recent report by the Correctional Investigator of Canada shows the proportion of Indigenous people behind bars has now surpassed 30% and is expected to hit 33% in the next three years. That's despite the fact that Indigenous people account for only 5% of the general population. I'll be having a conversation about that here shortly. The town of Ashcroft is the place to be when it comes to TV right now. The Twilight Zone is filming in the community, and I'll be speaking with uh, Mayor Barbara Roden about that in uh, just uh, around 9.35 here and end off the first major tennis season or tennis event of the season is in full swing. Despite those wildfires in Australia, Canada hasn't had the success that many might have hoped at the Aussie Open, but Milos Raonic is doing just fine, and I'll be speaking with tennis analyst John Horn to end off today's program. But... To begin today's show, I am joined by Interior Health Manager, Protection, Parking, and Fleet Services, Craig Payton. Craig, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me here today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Okay, so talking parking, and from what I understand, in 2019, there was a total of 19,401 tickets issued to those parking lots uh, of Interior Health Hospitals. So that's about 54 a day. It sounds like a lot of tickets, so I'm just going to start by asking you, Craig, is that a lot of tickets? When you look at it um, spread out over the facilities that um, those would be issued at, it, it's not um, not super high. Um, we see that is a pretty average number. So what are some of the major issues that lead to a lot of these tickets being issued? I mean, are, are is it pretty common things that people are doing that seem to be kind of, uh, you know, a, a similar offense that happens on a regular basis? More often than not, it's usually um, either not paying, um, possibly parking in the wrong spot, um, or an expired um, meter or time on the uh, paid ticket. Um, there's a few options that we've even implemented over the last few years to help alleviate some of that. Um, one of them being um, access to apps, um, so somebody can um, top up their parking from anywhere, um, as well as uh, a lot of our sites have gone to pay by plate so that way um, somebody can top up their parking from anywhere at any of the meters um, in any of the facilities as well just to help alleviate some of that Um, as well if somebody does um, run into that problem where they've run out of parking time um, or they've kind of run into the facility uh, in an emergency uh, and they would like to have that ticket reviewed they can always contact um, our contracted provider in park or reach out to interior health and and just get um, some more answers on that as well now there are a lot of people out there that believe, you know, when it comes to visiting a healthcare facility, and particularly a hospital, you know, you shouldn't have to to pay to park in order to go get yourself checked up and and make sure you're doing okay. Why is it important to have a paid parking system? I mean, there's obviously a reason behind why people are having to pay, you know, a couple of bucks to go into the hospital. Can you just sort of give me a a rundown as to why it's important to to have these, um, you know, these pay structures in place? Absolutely. Um, It's it's really striking that balance where we, the main focus of interior health um, is patient care, providing that care, making sure that um, the public can access the services that they need. Um, and the last thing that we want to do is use funding that could go towards patient care to um, provide uh, infrastructure and parking. Unfortunately, um, the ability to park on site uh, isn't necessarily 
conducive to um, the specific care somebody might be seeking, uh, but we want to make sure that it's available. So we want to strike that balance um, where it is, um, it's not creating a barrier so that the parking is available. It can be maintained properly. There's enough support there, but at the same time, we're not using that funding um, that could be going towards uh, equipment, um, services, uh, anything else related to the actual focus of patient care um, by having that available. Okay, that kind of makes sense. And from what I understand, the math that I saw online, that uh, parking accounts for about, uh, you know, a revenue that's generated from parking accounts for about 0.24% of the total IH budget, I believe it was. So it's very, very minimal at the end of the day. Um, what can you tell me a little bit about in terms of, um, you know, people who have issues with tickets? I mean, from what uh, from what I saw, that you know, about 19,400 tickets have been issued. About half of those have been paid, from what I understand. A quarter have been voided and a quarter or sort of outstanding. I mean, is there a real issue when it comes to um, outstanding tickets and people not paying for them? The outstanding ones, I, I can't speak to as much. Um, that's something that Impark really takes the lead on um, as our contracted enforcement provider. Um, on the flip side of that, if somebody does, um, and why we see such a, a high rate of waived and cancelled tickets, um, is we're very understanding of the various circumstances of what's occurred when somebody's going to one of our facilities and the challenges they might be facing. Um, so we approach it from a case-by-case basis, but in reality, um, there's very few instances where there's a legitimate um, financial hardship or medical condition or emergent situation where somebody's experienced a challenge with parking where we haven't been able to find a solution for somebody. Um, The only unfortunate thing is people don't um, always reach out, um, in which case, um, more often than not, there's an option. They just haven't reached out yet. Um, Best thing to do when somebody goes to site, especially if it's a financial hardship that they're dealing with um, and they're visiting quite frequently, um, or it's a medical condition, is to reach out to a social worker at one of the facilities um, and just find out what those options might be, um, and then also to follow up with interior health parking um, if they have any questions about a situation that um, they received a ticket that they're not so sure about. That's probably a good thing for people to know, because I'm sure there's a lot of people unaware of, of some of those avenues that they could go about if they have a, a, you know, a dispute, I guess, with a ticket itself. I'll get you out of here on this, Craig. Do you have a lot of people that, you know, um, have a, they get issued a ticket and they're maybe very pretty mad or irate about the whole situation Uh, maybe they take their ticket off their dash they go into the hospital and maybe start complaining and yelling at someone who has nothing to do with the parking situation do you have a lot of instances where that happens and and you know uh, maybe a nurse or somebody's day is kind of thrown off as a result of someone having to argue a parking ticket Absolutely. We do see it time and time again, um, and that's why we always encourage um, anybody who's in that uh, situation, um, like I said, to call the number on the back of the ticket or reach out to Interior Health Parking um, to explain the situation. And again, uh, don't get panicked by the fact that you've got the ticket. There's usually always a solution. Um, if it is a matter of uh, that not uh, or intentional not paying of parking um, fees, that's a little bit different, but usually we can always find a solution. Um, so uh, don't take it out on anybody um there's always an option and we can help somebody work through that yeah that's um the best way to go about doing it unfortunately not everyone's going to take that advice but uh, hopefully uh, with this uh, interview here we can uh, you know make sure people are aware of how to deal with those situations and not take it out on someone who really can't help you at the end of the day anyways thanks so much for taking the time craig really appreciate you coming on the program and uh, talking to us about parking i think it's some misconceptions out there about what it is so hopefully we cleared some of those up Thank you so much, Jeff. Awesome. That was Interior Health's Manager of Parking, Craig Payton.
Coming up next, how bad is it getting when talking about the overrepresentation of First Nations people in our jails? Well, a recent report by the Correctional Investigator of Canada shows the proportion of Indigenous people behind bars has surpassed that 30% mark and will hit 33% in the next three years, despite the fact that Indigenous people account for just 5% of the general Canadian population. Well, I'll be talking about that a little bit more after this, so stick around. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Thursday. As mentioned prior to the break, there continues to be an issue when it comes to the over-representation of Indigenous peoples in our jails. Um, going up to about 33% of people in the next three years will be Indigenous, 33% of people in jail. And uh, Indigenous people account for just 5% of the general population. So clearly those numbers don't correlate. I'm joined on the phone now by Patricia Barcassis, who is the director of the Indigenous Community Legal Clinic in Vancouver, and Mark Gervin, lecturer and legal services director. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. So let me just start with the simple question. Well, it's not simple. There's no simple questions when it comes to this issue. But overrepresentation in jails, it's not a new thing that's been going on. It's something that's been talked about for quite some time. And yet this issue continues to really not feel like it's getting addressed in any way, shape or form. I guess, you know, what, what have you seen over the last number of years when it comes to talking about this and yet no movement has happened? I mean, why are we continuing to have this conversation and yet the, the numbers just keep seeming to get worse? Thanks, Jess. So I think that it's fair to say that the, you know, the people in the legal Canadian criminal legal system are aware of this issue and there's been a lot of talk about trying to change it. One of the main ways that people talk about trying to change it is through GLADU, um, which is uh, a set of, you know, a set of a sentencing principle that um, says that every alternative to incarceration for Indigenous peoples must be considered. Um, however, what we're seeing on the ground is that that's actually not been applied very well, if at all, over time. And at the end of the day, it doesn't, it still doesn't address the overall issue of whether incarceration is the right answer, period. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree. And it's, it, it is a shocking numbers, the, the numbers, for example, uh, Indigenous women, we're getting close in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we were told by the Supreme Court of Canada, we have to stop putting Indigenous people in jail. We have to stop using jail as a way to um, fix this issue. We're not going to fix it uh, by jailing people. And yet the numbers are rising so rapidly and we are getting close. I was looking at the numbers. We're getting close to half the female offenders in jail being indigenous and as you said the amount of indigenous people in this province are so small so we are getting close to half that population and it's rising at this rapid rate and it's it's an odd concern to me uh well it's it's a terror it's a concern to anybody who uh, thinks about this but one of the things that uh is bothering to me and I don't understand it. I haven't been able to figure out. We both practice, Patricia and I, in the lower mainland. And so my main courthouses are uh, Vancouver and Surrey. And I talk to judges regularly about this, Crown, my colleagues on the defense bar. And it seems to me that we are getting some worse we're getting a handle on it. We are, 
I think, and I would love to see these figures, is I think that we in the Lower Mainland have an idea that we're not going to send as many people, Indigenous people, to jail. And I see the judges on a regular basis try hard not to do that, which makes me wonder what the rest of the province is doing. And that I don't know. And the Crown is one body. It's like a, it's like a single law firm, and it's throughout the province. And the Crown is trying hard as well not to uh, jail Indigenous people at this rate, and yet it doesn't seem to be working at all. Well, as we know, it's not working at all. I don't know what the answer to that is. And uh, to follow that up, I mean, we're talking about the number of people obviously in jail who have been incarcerated for offenses. Um, I mean, I can't imagine that we see one in every three people that's represented in court being Indigenous, yet one in three people behind bars is an Indigenous person. I mean, can is there any explanation for why it seems that First Nation individuals are being sent to prison more often than others? Well, one of the things that we know, Jeff, from various research that's been done over the last number of decades is that indigenous people tend to receive um, receive many conditions on their on their sentences when they are when they're released and because of that they they end up breaching in ways that other people perhaps do not and so those breaches over time add up and add up and add up to a point where they, they just become more and more and more and more jail time because that's the way that the system works. The step up principle says that every time somebody's in jail, the next time they're in jail, they need to be in jail longer. Um, and, you know, I, I'll be frank, of course, we can't discount racism period, plain and simple, um, or the impacts of colonialism over the last at least 150 years in the sense that, that Indigenous people simply from the beginning of their lives in most cases face a different set of circumstances that has been, that has been created by colonialism. And in that, in that context, they're going to be dealing with intergenerational um, trauma and, as, as Hadley Friedland calls it, interge- intergenerational injustice, really, at the end of the day. So they, they've come through, let's say, the child welfare system, if we're talking about the, the apprehension of Indigenous children from their homes, they've not been given the same opportunities, and they end up in situations where trying to deal with all of that cr- may create a situation where there are no fixed address, they may be dealing with um, dr- drug or alcohol use, and those situations put them in places where, you know, they run into police and RCMP, they're racially profiled, and then they are criminalized in a way that other people just are not. Absolutely. I could not agree with Patricia Moore. We are, um, we are struggling in this country uh, with racism. Uh, we are struggling with the effects of colonialism that we are responsible for. Um, Canadians have a hard time accepting that, that we are racist and that we have done these horrific things to Indigenous people in this country. And one of those ongoing things is many of my clients are homeless. They may be suffering from uh, mental illness of some sort or fetal alcohol syndrome, and uh, so you'll see on a bail document, so a release document out of jail, or a probation order, 
that they must have a curfew, that our clients must have a curfew. Well, recently I saw, I think it was last week, a bail document and the uh, indigenous person had been arrested because they weren't inside on their curfew. On the front of that bail document, their address was homeless. So they were homeless and a judge imposed a, um, a curfew on that person. That's impossible. So a police officer uh, will, it, it might start this way. You see this indigenous person out at two in the morning. Oh, immediately the racial profiling becomes the, and the police officer is thinking, well, I see somebody out there, they look homeless, so they go and run their name. They find out that they're supposed to be inside at 10 p.m. And then they'll just arrest them and send them off to jail. And then that person might get seen the next day, and so they'll spend 24, 30 hours in jail, and they are uh, dealing with uh, going to the court, and I have no, I have no roof. How am I supposed to be inside? How am I supposed to obey my curfew? Why are we putting that curfew in the first place? Why are we putting a reside condition? So one of the conditions are you must reside at this address or you must report to your bail supervisor once a week. That person is struggling to find food, shelter, and just remember their court appearance. And we've put on a, an additional maybe eight, 10 conditions many of which do not, uh, do not really address any sort of criminalization. A lot of these times, these are, we're talking breaches like a curfew. That is, that is just looking, almost looking to criminalize somebody. How do, you, how do you put a curfew on somebody who doesn't have a roof over their head? and maybe is struggling with an IQ, a, a low IQ because of some organic brain damage or a head injury or many other things. You think about this as well as like, you want that person to be in at a certain point and you want them to report at a certain point. Well, if you're homeless, you don't have a calendar on your tree that you're uh, living beside. Mm -hmm. You don't have, or if you're, I live in a neighborhood in the downtown east side where I see many of my clients living under bridges. There is no way, you know, I have an alarm clock. My client doesn't have an alarm clock. He's barely holding it together. He's trying to figure out how to grab some food and stay warm. And so we've put on all these barriers to these people that ought not to have been there. If you and I miss our appointment at uh, our dentist, our dentist may charge us for that misappointment? Probably not. If my client misses his appointment at the bail supervisor, by the way, the bail supervisor just says show up to court next week. If he misses that, uh, that uh, appointment, he goes to jail. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, man, we didn't get very far into this conversation. It is 9.30, so I got to let you guys go because I promised I would, but uh, didn't get very far into this conversation. There is a lot we could go and, and break down as a result of this report, and this report, of course, is just many in, in a long line that highlights this as an issue. So, Patricia and uh, Mark, thank you guys so much for taking the time to speak to me. Uh, maybe we can revisit this conversation in the future because uh, there's a lot more to discuss here. 
Thanks, Jeff. We'd be happy to talk to you again in the future if right. you want to follow up with us. Sounds Absolutely. great. Jeff, thank you very much. All right. That was Patricia Barcassis, the director of the Indigenous Community Legal Clinic in Vancouver, and Mark Gervin, lecturer and legal services director, talking about the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in our jail. A pretty disturbing report that recently came out here um, not too long ago, talking about how we're almost at one third of those behind bars being an Indigenous individual. Well, I got to take a quick break here, but I'm going to have more Jeff Andrea show coming up after the break. We're going to be talking Twilight Zone. Stick around. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, January 23rd, and thank you so much for tuning in. A well-known TV series is filming now in downtown Ashcroft this week. Sources say the CBS series called The Twilight Zone is now in the village filming for part of its second season. Season one was filmed in the Lower Mainland, and the season debut will debut later this year. So we can check out what's going on in Ashcroft on the small screen coming up in a few months, I'm guessing. But uh, right now, here to talk about it is the mayor of Ashcroft herself, Barbara Roden. Barbara, thanks so much for coming on. Well, thanks for inviting me to be on the show, Jeff. Yeah, well, I thought it was a pretty, you know, fun little thing that's happening in the community, not something that happens every day. You know, you got a film crew coming into town. They're building some sets. I mean, what's the buzz been like in the community so far? I mean, I'm assuming that uh, people in Ashcroft are, are pretty excited to see this project taking place. There's been a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement. Uh, it's the first, uh, we've had a lot of major film crews in and around the area, sort of on the Ashcroft Reserve, up at the Campbell Hill Airport, so films like 2012, the A-Team. But this is the first time that a major production has filmed in the downtown area since 2002. So you're, you're quite right when you say this does not happen every day. So we're, we're really excited about it. It's kind of like back in the Lower Mainland. I was living there when the filming really started to pick up, and people were really excited. And now in Vancouver, it's, oh, another film crew clogging up the streets. And we haven't reached that point in Ashcroft yet. So, I mean, what, what are you kind of seeing around the, the set itself? I'm assuming that there's a lot of people from the public who are, uh, you know, taking the time to, to stand out there and, and watch what's going on, watch some of the set being built and, and things along those lines. I mean, are, are you seeing a lot of people going out of their way to check out what's going on? I've, I've, I've noticed a bit more traffic. My office is right on 4th Street. If I was a, a good baseball player, I could throw a baseball and hit the set uh, from my front door. And I, I've noticed an uptick in traffic. People sort of standing watching, people taking pictures, uh, lots on social media. And it's, it's, just, it's just fun to watch the, the process because it's out, right out in the open in a, a parking lot so, so people can, can get a really good view of what's going on. And I know they have hired a lot of local people for security, uh, to work on the crew, to be PAs on the, on the, the crew. So, so it's really good for people that way. A lot of uh, locals are getting some real hands-on, up-close uh, involvement with the project. Uh, what, what can you see, I guess, uh, you know, if you're looking at it outside your office, what, what does the scene look like right now? Can you tell me? I mean, is there a, what, what, is the, the set still being built from what I understand, right? So what, like, what, are, what is the progress like out there? Well, we've seen it go in a week from just a, a bunch of scaffolding to uh, it's actually quite odd because I'm watching uh, one of our historic churches, Zion United Church, which is a block further down the street. I'm watching that being built right across from me because um, what we've been told is they want to use the church for interior filming. It works out fine, but for the purposes of the storyline, the church needs to be beside a bank and 
where the church is is just not a suitable location for exterior filming. So they are actually building a 3D replica of our, our United Church in the empty parking lot beside the Mascon building, which was originally built as a bank. So that's going to be turned into a bank, and now you'll have the exterior of the church right next door, so that, that makes it easier for filming. But it's just really odd to see a, a, an iconic Ashcroft building being replicated right mm-hmm. in front of my eyes. Yeah, well, let the speculation begin then. Why would they need a bank right next to a church? What does that mean for the storyline? I guess people can kind of use their imagination to guess at this point in time. Um, what is well, having a... It is the Twilight Zone, so, <laughs> you know, let your imagination go crazy. Oh, it could be anything. <laughs> um, what does having a project like this in the community do for you guys? I mean, uh, you know, have you noticed a lot of um, uptick? I mean, maybe not uptick's not the right word, but, I mean, a, a project like this will bring people into the community that probably wouldn't be there otherwise when you're looking at film crews and actors and things like that. So uh, I'm just curious, have you, uh, is the, uh, the community itself, when it comes to businesses and restaurants, must be pretty happy to see something like this rolling through town. This is huge. I mean, it's, it's been estimated that by the time everyone gets here and filming starts, there will be 175 crew members in town. And I don't know if that includes all the locals who are because they, they put out a casting call for extras. So one of the interior scenes is going to require about 80 background people. So that's a lot of locals being hired for that. And I've, I've been talking to some local business owners and they've noticed an uptake um, in, in uh, people going to the local bakery. You know, they've been busy at breakfast time. The, re- the hotels in Cash Creek are full. The restaurants are doing doing good business so and this is january is just a traditionally not a great time i i suspect for businesses everywhere because the tourism season you know you're not even shoulder season you're pre-shoulder season so there are no tourists and and people are taking a look at their credit card bills after christmas and going oh we have to cut back a little here so it's really great to have this injection at this time of year um and it's great to be able to showcase our our town that the, the crew have been fantastic they're they're friendly um, and meeting with the location manager, he made it clear that in addition to what they're already putting into the economy, they want to leave behind like a, a legacy, something in the village that will be a lasting reminder of the film crew having been here. So that's that's a really great uh, that's a really great uh, gesture and, and being a good uh, good citizen. Yeah, I think it's really cool and um, definitely, you know, big economic impact for your community when you're taking 175 people plus the call for extras. Um, Have you heard or is there going to be a chance for some locals to be in the show? I assume when we're talking extras, it's going to be people from the community or at least some of them will be from the community. Well, they've asked for the background extras. Um, They've asked specifically that they be in the region because it's long days. Uh, You're committing to up to 12 hours a day. and, And once you've committed, you know, they expect you to be there. So... They want people specifically from the Ashcroft, Cash Creek, uh, Spences Bridge, I guess uh, Clinton area, who are within easy driving distance of Ashcroft, so that they can they can commit to being here once they've been signed on. So, uh, certainly from the, the what I've seen on social media, there's a lot of excitement about the uh, the extra call, and I think a lot I know of a lot of people who've already sent in an application. Right on. Well, it's definitely a very exciting thing and, uh, you know, something that's definitely created a lot of buzz. I've seen a lot of talk online about it, and uh, clearly you're seeing a lot of people in the community take a little bit of time out of their day to check and see what's going on. And um, it's going to be it's gonna be fun to see how this whole project comes together and just how the community of Ashcroft is represented. And, you know, it is the Twilight Zone, so you never know if it could be a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, hopefully either way it uh, comes with some good press. Um, Barbara, while I have you here, is there anything else that uh, you want to talk about about what's going on in Ashcroft? I'm sure there's a little bit more than just a television show happening in the community. Uh, Just curious while I have you here if there's anything else you want to highlight. 
Uh, well, it's funny you should say that because um, pretty much as soon as the uh, Twilight Zone crew has uh, finished their filming and, and struck the set and, and departed, we're having another film crew move in. Uh, they're going to be doing some shooting in the area and uh, so some fairly big uh, big events going on in, in the area around us. And they, they too want to shoot uh, at least one scene in downtown Ashcroft. So it looks like uh, we're, we're, the, the dust will just have settled from Twilight Zone and we're going to have a new crew move in. So. Well, exciting times in the community of Ashcroft. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and, and speak to me on this. Definitely, like I said, very exciting that the, this kind of stuff is happening. And um, I, I look forward to finding out just uh, just how this episode turns out. It, I'm not a huge Twilight Zone fan of, of the new series I haven't watched. That I watched the old stuff, not so much the new one. But this will definitely, um, you know, has piqued my interest. And maybe I'll have to give it a go now once it debuts here in 2020. So thank you so much for your oh. time. And uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. You have a great day. You as well. That was the mayor of Ashcroft, Barbara Roden, talking about uh, the filming that's going on right now in the community, looking at uh, season two of the new Twilight Zone. So that'll be debuting at some point this year. I was trying to find out exactly when that series airs here. I just couldn't quite come up with a date. So uh, sometime here in 2020, there'll be an opportunity to watch Ashcroft on the Twilight Zone. And who knows what's coming up next? It sounds like there's more projects on the way. So definitely an exciting time for the community. Coming up next, I'm going to be talking a little bit about tennis. Yes, the first major tennis tournament of the year is underway in Australia, despite the fact that that insane fire season continues to roll on. Hasn't been a great event for Canadians so far, um, but we'll talk more about that with tennis analyst John Horn after the break, so please stick around. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. It's Thursday, and thanks so much for joining me here. The Australian Open is now in full swing, the first major of the tennis season, and things maybe haven't been going quite as smoothly as, le- at least as I anticipated they would for these uh, those that are representing the Canadian flag here to start. But I'm going to be uh, breaking it all down, and I'm joined by World Feed commentator and tennis analyst John Horn to go about doing just that. John, thanks so much for coming on. Jeff, thanks for having me. Enjoyed the George Michael intro music, too, by yeah, the way. It's always say. good, right? It's always good. I love it. <laughs> Um, so let's just start by talking about what's going on with Canadians. There's really only one Canadian mm-hmm. left standing when we're talking about the singles event. That's Milos Raonic. I mean, he's been uh, having a rough couple of seasons when it comes to injuries, something that seems to have been a problem for the Thornhill later for, for quite some time. But he looks healthy right now. He cruised for the first two rounds in straight sets. I mean, what are you seeing, seeing from Milos? Is this a story about health right now more than anything else? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that really that's been the story of his career, unfortunately, is that, you know, whenever we're talking about Milos Raonic, uh, whether it's uh, on radio interviews or on TV or whether you're talking to him in press, it's it's always about, hey, Milos, how are you doing? Or how's Milos doing? Uh, what injuries he got right now? And, uh, you know, I really feel bad for the guy over the years. He's really had a tough time with a, a number of injuries, and it's really set him back. And I've always said that uh, I really think that he possibly could have won a Grand Slam by now. He just, you know, he's always out, and he doesn't get in these rhythms where he's able to play consecutive 
consecutive grand slams and play for long uh, stretches of time. And, uh, you know, again, last year he was hurt. He was hurt uh, for quite some time and then he got back and then he was hurt again and played Labor Cup, got hurt again and didn't really play a lot to finish the year, played a couple tournaments. So really the story is that Milos Raonic is healthy and it's kind of funny. It's, it's kind of circa 2013, really, if you look at it, all the Canadians are out of the, uh, out of the draw and Milos Raonic is the only one that everybody's watching. And that's kind of been what it's been like before us and Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime and uh, Leilani Fernandez uh, and Bianca Andreescu sort of came on the scene. It was sort of Milos and Vasek Pospisil. And, um, you know, most of the time it was Milos who was going deep into the slams and we were watching him by himself. So that's kind of what's happening this year. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, he has been hurt, but it's good to see him healthy. And he's uh, got a tough draw, a tough match coming up in the third round against Stefano Tsitsipas, the number six player in the world, uh, the Greek star who's really uh, turned a corner and is one of the top young players on the tour. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that one. I believe that's coming up later tonight around midnight. I think it starts mm-hmm. in Pacific time. Um, but yeah, I mean, Milos comes in ranked uh, number 32 or seeded 32 in this tournament, uh, and he's going up against the six-seeded six Greek. I mean, um, what, are, what are you seeing or what are you anticipating when it comes to this match? Because I think maybe that 32 seed is a bit misleading for Milos just because, you know, he hasn't been playing a whole lot, and he's probably, sure. um, you know, a better player than that 32 rank. But, um, you know, are you expecting a much tighter match maybe? I mean, it's both these guys have rolled through the first two rounds. I know Setsipas had a retirement, I believe, in the second yeah. round, so he didn't even have to really play. Um, I mean, this, do you think this will be a, a good test? I mean, Milos isn't really a run-and-gun kind of guy, right? A big serve guy, but Setsipas seems to have uh, quite a bit of mobility, mobility and uh, energy. Yeah, I mean, Sissy Pass is a is a tough uh, tough player. I mean, he's he's the number six player in the world for a reason. Uh, he's had he's had a really good run since he's turned pro, and uh, he won the year end finals last year in London, and uh, played a couple of exhibitions where he looks strong too. And um, you know, I think that you know ATP Cup too. I think he's a, he's a he's a really strong player, and I think that uh, Milos is going to you know have a tough time against him. Just like you said, uh, he serves well, he moves around the court well, uh, hits that one handed backhand. Uh, is a solid solid player on both sides and uh, fatigue I think is never really a factor for him. He, he moves really well and he doesn't seem to get worn down. He's one of the most uh, active players on tour in terms of tournaments. He plays almost every single week and it doesn't matter if it's a bigger tournament or a smaller one. He's usually in the field somewhere. Uh, he likes to play. He's young. He's only 20. So, I mean, I think that uh, you know it's going to be tough for Raonic. I think he's actually since the best 21, but he, I think he's actually, um, you know, he's got a shot. I never would rule Raonic out he's got the experience for sure he's played really well at the Australian Open over the years uh, he's won more matches at the Australian Open than any other uh, Grand Slam that he's played at even more than Wimbledon so um, he knows what it takes to play in these conditions it's going to be a primetime matchup in Australia 7 o'clock Australia time and um, I think it'll be a good matchup I don't see Roundage winning I think you know it could go four or five sets but I definitely think that Sitsi Pass is the stronger player just based on the fact that he's been playing more and um, it's just been nice to see Roundage out there and he won his first two matches in straight sets and he just needs to do what uh, what he does well and that's you know serve well, uh, return well which he's been really working on, come to the net as much as possible, try to dictate the points and not let Pass dictate the points and um, you know he'll make it competitive but I, I still see Pass coming out uh, ahead in the match.
Yeah, well, even if that is the case, hopefully this is a sign, this is a step that Milos is getting healthy and, and we'll have a, a, a strong 2020 season because I think we all in Canada want to see that again. Um, with that in mind, uh, what about the two young guns? I mean, we saw Felix Ojeda-Lassim and Denis Shapovalov both bow out in the first round in four sets each. Um, you know, Shapo, when he was doing his interview, said, you know, he really wasn't all there in, in that specific match. I mean, these guys are the up-and-comers for Canadian tennis but didn't seem to have it here in this event. Um, can you just speak on each one just briefly about what you kind of saw in their play and and whether you think this is just uh, you know a matter of growing pains i guess yeah i mean i think it definitely growing pains it's just unfortunate that you know shapovalov got up to the 13th seed in the tournament 15 in the world and uh, i think the expectations going into this grand slam were were pretty pretty reasonable considering he played well at davis cup played well at the atp cup quarterfinals in new zealand um you know had won his first tournament not that long ago uh, when he won it late last year and you know he built up that ranking and looked like he'd sort of turned a corner because he had a pretty miserable um you know middle part to uh, summer last year and uh he's he really put his game together and has, you know, cut down on the double faults, uh, and, you know, less mistakes on the backhand side and on the forehand side. And looks like he, you know, this would be a tournament that he would do well in. But for whatever reason, uh, you know, he just had an off match. Uh, his opponent, uh, Martin Fukovic from uh, Hungary, played really well, I thought. Uh, Shapovalov obviously was frustrated, uh, threw his racket down a couple times, uh, was making some uh, unforced errors that he was making before he'd had the success of late. And I don't know if it's just the pressure of, uh, you know, being a higher seed and uh, or maybe playing a little bit too much tennis uh, leading into the tournament. I know that's been talked about for some players. Uh, same with Felix that he played the week before, got to the semis, and then loses first round of the slam. Uh, you know, Shabalov, for whatever reason, just in the slams, he just he seems to be, I don't know if it's because it's three out of five or what, but, um, you know, three third-round appearances, uh, lost in the first round three times, a couple second-round losses. He really hasn't done a lot in the last nine slams or so. So um, I think, you know, Again, he's young, uh, 20 years old. It's an experience, learning experience. Same for Felix Ojeda. Same, you know, first time he'd ever played at the Australian Open in a Slam. Lost to a player he probably should have beaten, a uh, veteran Ernest Golbus, who was a who had to win three matches just to get into the main draw. Uh, but he was making some uh, unforced errors too, and uh, I just uh, thought that he had some chances to break, and he didn't. And uh, and, and it, unfortunately, it just didn't work out for him. But um, you know, chalk it up to a, another learning experience. I don't always like to say that because now they're really sort of comfortable on tour, both of them, and they should be winning matches uh, more regularly for the for the quality of tennis that they can provide and the talent that they have. But uh, it just happens that sometimes at the Australian Open, the, in the first round, you never know what's going to happen. And unfortunately for those two guys, uh, it just wasn't meant to be. I'll get you out of here on this, John, because I did want to ask uh, about what you're hearing in terms of the, the fire situation, just because we did see, you know, in the qualifiers, we saw players who were competing and having some difficulty mm -hmm. breathing. There was one instance where someone had to uh, retire from a match just because of the air yeah. quality. Have, has this been an issue for players? Have you heard much uh, from players when it comes to how that air is, is impacting them? Yeah, I mean, it's really quieted down. I mean, I know that they've had, uh, there's been a lot of rain in Australia the last uh, few days, so uh, you may have noticed that some of the matches have been suspended or postponed or been moved to other courts because of uh, the rain. So uh, really, there have been times where a lot of the matches have been indoors and then the rain has sort of come along and helps with, you know, I'm not sure exactly how how much rain has fallen in terms of helping the all the fires and everything, but I think any water is, is probably uh, helpful to everything that's been going on. I mean, the, the country has just been ravaged by the 
these fans, or by these fires mm-hmm. rather, and it's it's just been uh, it's been horrendous to see the pictures and everything. So uh, I will say that the I think that the the Australian Open, the men's and women's tours, they've been doing a, a phenomenal job raising money. Uh, you know, uh, all these people, uh, all these people donating money, uh, all the players donating money. Um, aces, uh, every ace players are donating two hundred dollars, hundred dollars just to help out, and uh, I think it's been really good to see. But we haven't been really hearing much from the players in terms of the problems with the air and the quality, and uh, I think that's a good thing because certainly during, as you mentioned, the qualifying events, uh, it was looking problematic. Uh, there were players coughing, as you said. Then Braden Schnur, the Canadian player, had made some comments that he thought that the top players should have said more and they should be doing more to keep the young players off the course during qualifying. But uh, it sort of simmered down, though, and this is kind of what happens at these big tournaments. There's so many storylines and so much thing, so many things going on that um, as much as it's a big issue and it's a hot topic uh, and players are still thinking about everything that's going on and the people, it's it's one of those things where it's kind of simmered down now and people are focusing in on the matches and the tennis, and, uh, uh, and that seems to be what the players are doing as well. Right on, John. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me. I think it's a great tournament, and I'm glad to hear that you know things have kind of settled down when it comes to that fire situation, at least for the time being, and hopefully we can get through the tournament here without any issues. Thanks so much for coming on, John. Appreciate your time. No problem, Jeff. Stay warm up there. Thanks very much. <laughs> we will. That was uh, tennis analyst and World Feed commentator John Horn. Check him out on Twitter at Sports Horn. Definitely worth a follow if you are a tennis fan. Well, that wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Friday at 9.